why do the bad guys get to have all the fun? They get the rampant disregard for human life, get to be selfish every so often, and can even get paid for using their superpowers or magic or whatever it is they use to do the stuff they do. Hell, they even get to be kinky without the implication that they're fucked up or need some good old-fashioned character development to knock that aberrant sexuality right out of them. But why is that? Why can't the good guys get on some weird fucking too? And why do we have such a problem with poems and books about people pounding pubis? We talk about kink and erotica today on Why Are You Talking About This? Nerd. everyone, and welcome to Why Aren't You Talking About This Nerd, a.k.a. Waytat Nerd. I am your host, William. I want to thank you all for listening, even if it's punishment for coming when you weren't supposed to, or your Dom won't let you touch the pod player. It means the world to have the listenership, captive audience or not. Now, this is the part of the show where I'd answer emails or address concerns, but so far my email box only has passive-aggressive jabs from podcasting platforms calling me a coward for not buying their services. So instead of telling you how this is done or non-existent merch announcements or anything like that, this week I'm starting off the show with a content warning. This week, because the focus is about sex and sexuality, I'm going to be saying stuff around it a lot more and may even be outing myself more than normal. So if you'd be disturbed by discussing sex and sexuality or hearing my voice say more of that than normal, you might want to skip this episode. Luckily, I have about eight hours of other podcasts to listen to in the meantime. But with that, let's jump right into the episode. And I think the best place to start would be discussing what kinks, fetishes, and the community even is to start with. A kink, in the simplest words is sexual behavior or a habit that would fall into quote-unquote normal conceptions of sex and sexuality. This would be stuff like certain positions, clothing up to a point, specific colors that turn your penis into a diamond cutter, and other things like that. A fetish, however, is something that is normally sexual or sexually arousing that is sexually arousing despite not being designed by evolution and or sky daddy to put your genitals around. And these things, together, fall into something called the kink community, with its own sub-communities within it. The kink community is the general name for people into these sexual acts, and are either open about it or live a lifestyle that allows them to pursue it. People in the kink community usually embrace their kinks and fetishes and take a lot of pride in them. But before we continue, there is another important thing to note about these things. While it is sexual in nature, something important to remember for kinks especially is that they don't have to include coming or having sexual contact, and in some cases don't even necessarily involve being aroused. 
Rather, kinks can also come with a feeling of physical, emotional, and even spiritual pleasure and fulfillment and closeness with the person or people engaging in it. Yes, sex is part of it, but especially for people who live a lifestyle around it, something about it feels satisfying and comfortable. And how do I know that? Well, I mean, if you haven't listened to my other episodes where I've outed myself, I'm part of that community. And more specifically, the BDSM community. And while I don't participate as much as I'd like to, that being at all, being a situation that plays into that kink feels immensely safe and satisfying, especially for someone like me. But with those terms accounted for and you eased onto it with a healthy amount of lube, let's talk about another term that'll probably get used a lot. Vanilla. And rather than referring to ice cream with the same flavor as the flavoring that I totally didn't take a swig of as a child and caused myself irreversible resting bitch face, this refers to any form of quote-unquote basic sex. And what is basic sex? Sex without kinks or without the kinks that either person particularly likes. For example, take two people heavily into bondage, submission domination, and using enough wax to keep your town's candle factory in business for another year, their vanilla sex would be the kind that doesn't take a few hours and then another couple hours to clean. While someone that just likes getting bitten a little bit and has a real thing for dirty talk, vanilla sex is when their partner isn't a biter and is cheesier than an 80s movie. And if you're into sex just quietly humping away at each other for about 60 seconds and then turning over in shame and falling asleep, imagine if you did that for only like 10 seconds? And the last thing to talk about before we actually get into talking about actual literature and writing is a concept you'll probably see a lot if you create any kind of kink literature, abbreviated as, and oh, please have mercy on me, Y-K-I-N-M-K-B-Y-K-I-O-K. While this and similar versions will get posted in comment sections, and erotica boards are occasionally places where the internet equivalent of deep-sea fish reside. I'm going to say the actual phrase from now on because, fuck me, I'm never reading that aloud again. Your kink is not my kink, but your kink is okay. While this seems lengthy and like some woke culture bullshit, being that specific is actually justified. Because of the nature of kinks being deeply tied to someone's feeling of comfort and security themselves and the community... It's important to validate their kink, even if it isn't your thing or makes you the opposite of turned on. And obviously, this has limits, but because I'm assuming we're both adults and not just trying to win internet argument points, I'm not going to address that line again. But what this phrase means is, hey, I see you, but I'm not into that. Which is very important when giving criticism of erotic literature. By using this point when giving critique, you're letting the author know your ignorance or disinterest in their kink isn't the source of the critique, which will probably result in the critique actually being taken into consideration. So, now we're ready to talk erotic literature. Erotic literature in general is any kind meant to inspire intense feelings of passionate sexual and or romantic relationships in your readers and is a subtype of erotic art, alongside erotic painting, erotic drawing, erotic film, and erotic sculpting. Which is interesting for a few reasons. I mean, one, there's kind of an assumption for most people that erotic literature is mostly, if not entirely, about fucking, when in reality it can be just about any kind of steamy, passionate relationship between two people. And secondly, because 
erotic art is art. There is artistry and mastery to it, which goes against how a lot of people think of it as a really seedy, uncouth thing people who can't control their boners do. But also, this umbrella doesn't really tell you a ton about erotic literature unless you just so happen to have a degree in literature you aren't using. But literature covers a wide range of art pieces, as does erotic literature. These would include things like erotic verse, being poems with some steamy, hot, nasty fucking in them, erotic romance, which includes physical touch and passion, but cares a lot more about the romantic side of it. Next is smut or erotica, kind of being interchangeable terms, but vaguely different that focuses primarily on the sex. The key difference being that smut is usually super filthy and mostly just about the fucking, while erotic will have, you know, like, a story. And the final kind is erotic visual novels, or as most degenerates know it, manga hentai, or as some normal people know it, daoshin. This is an art form that uses the medium of manga, comics, and other visual novels to tell a sexually explicit story often focus around sex or romance, but not often both. But, now why am I talking about erotic literature? Isn't this episode about kinks and kink and fiction in general? Yes, but erotic literature is really where a lot of the actual advice and applications is going to apply when we get to that section. Because very rarely in your run-of-the-mill fantasy novel or sci-fi show will characters in detail account fuck in front of the audience. At most, in most shows, you'll see two actors humping away on each other with some flesh-colored tights on or miming it. While in most books there might be some description of what's happening, it'll probably not be that detailed or it'll be interrupted by something. But with that, let's move on to the history. Alright, we start off once again in the oldest shit to ever exist. Ancient Sumeria is responsible for our oldest love poem ever, written for an ancient Sumerian king from the perspective of an especially horny woman. Which may or may not have been written by a man, I'm not entirely clear on the details, since this poem isn't exactly easy to find. I mean, go figure. Also in ancient Sumeria are the massive sets of poems about the goddess Anana, goddess of love, war, fertility, beauty, sex, divine law, and political power, having very explicit and steamy sex with her mortal lover, the shepherd Dumuzid, who is a very lucky man. And while yes, as in the gross boys only think about sex way, it's also because if the goddess of love, war, and dami mommies is into you, you're doing something right. I mean, as much as I think I'm a decent catch, this dude's dick and good partner game are an entirely different level. Anyways, throughout the ancient period, much of the same is seen across a lot of ancient cultures. Alongside epics about big old manly heroes, origin stories of humanity and nature, and massive plays about political intrigue and family drama, a good number of people were interested in writing about sex, from tender lovemaking to primal and savage fucking. And while it wouldn't surprise you that the ancient Egyptians, Greeks, Aztecs, Chinese, and whatever other ancient writing cultures you could put erotic verse after were writing poems like this, it might surprise you that the precursors to Christianity has an entire book dedicated to it. Somewhere between 971 and 931 BC, the Hebrew Tanakh is written. This book, also often mistakenly named the Torah for one of the three books contained within it, was the direct ancestor of both Christianity 
and Islam, and one of the books written in it was filled with erotic verse and love poems called Song of Songs. Well, now the entire section is called the Songs of Solomon, as including Christian canon as an allegory for God and Israel. The Hebrew version is just straight-up poems about a man and a woman writing each other some really horny and erotic and romantic letters, which, as someone who has read this book, it's a little weird calling it an allegory for God and Israel, given that the woman gets both fingered and eaten out. But, hey, maybe your relationship with Jesus is a bit different than most people's. Anyways, somewhere between 400 and 200 BC, the Kama Sutra is written. While in the modern day, this is called a sex book almost exclusively, this original version will more of an advice book and guide for all things romantic. They include questions and philosophy about love, how to court and romance, how to maintain and obtain fulfilling romantic, emotional, and sexual relationships, and tips and tricks that'll make dick pill salesmen hate you. And in this original version, it not only advocated for mutually pleasurable sex, but mutually pleasurable relationships and linked the two, and gave actual actionable advice on handling problems in your sexual and romantic lives. And we'll get into how that got all fucked up later. After this, much of the history of erotic literature is quite similar, but with the steady shift during the Middle Ages taking place that turns the stories a bit more away from sex and more towards the romantic part of erotic storytelling, since, you know, we didn't really want to offend Jeezy Boy and all. Despite that, there's still a good amount of fucking in medieval writing, either in allusions and poetry and plays, or in the full-fledged erotic books like the Decameron in the 1350s. In this book, a group of ten people take shelter in an Italian estate from the Black Plague and end up sucking, fucking, and adulterizing all over it. In addition, the Canterbury Tales, written between 1387 and 1400, have some notably spicy moments in them, and even have some medieval portrayals of sex, including plots that you'd probably think were plot conveniences from internet porn. Now, unfortunately for all this dirty writing, the Puritan era of literature began in 1620. This era was essentially a bunch of religious people reading stories like the Canterbury Tales, and watching Shakespeare and thinking, society's gone too far this time. Which, <laughs> only they could see today. But, anyways, in this period, the focus of writing shifted to be all about God and the Lord and the good things that they do, which to them, for some reason, doesn't involve sex and eroticism, despite the fact that the clitoris exists and the prostate is the G-spot. I'm going to say something controversial and say that if God didn't want us fucking, the clitoris wouldn't exist and the male G-spot wouldn't be just far enough into the butthole that finger could press the cum button. Anyways, the focus of Puritan writing was in finding symbols of God and the divine in mundane things, and God's influence in their daily, missionary-only, baby-making, but not in the fun way lives. This period lasted until 1728, being replaced by the Restoration Era following it. The Restoration Era in the 17th century was partially shepherded in by John Wilmot, most well-known for both his erotic and satirical poetry. The Restoration Era was heavily focused on the rejection of Puritan ideals like predestination and God being present in every moment of our lives, as well as satire and a heavy focus on the social interactions and relationships rather than your relationship with God. In addition, a lot of these works were super, super political. But getting back to the publication of erotic literature, 
1763, an essay on woman was published as a satire on the set of poems called An Essay of Man. This collection includes classics like The Dying Lover to His Brick, The Universal Prayer, which has the same name as the poem it's parodying, Veni Creator, or The Maid's Prayer, and An Essay on Woman, all of these written by John Wilkes, and no, not that John Wilkes. And if you, like me, were unfamiliar with these poems, there's a reason why. See, at the time, these poems were considered so obscene and sacrilegious that he was declared an outlaw in England, which might seem like an overreaction by today's standards. Understand that the poems An Essay of Man were a collection of poems about morality and God, and the poems The Universal Prayer and Veni Creator Spiritus were both poems about being a good Christian boy and praising Jesus, so turning them into dirty poems were pretty big deals. I mean, it's not as bad, but it's two or three orders of magnitude lower than if you not only drew Muhammad, but drew Muhammad as an anime girl getting triple stuff. I mean, pretty reasonably, most if not all Muslim people would be super offended by that. And not really helping the case of erotic literature is Marquis de Sade, See, for a good number of years, this French novelist's writings were incredibly popular pieces of erotic literature that today would probably get at least three-quarters of all people extremely upset and worried, and the last one-quarter some sort of law enforcement or mental health professional called on. Like, reading Mein Kampf. Marquis de Sade's work was filled with sexual assault, brutal violence, necrophilia, and basically any other gross sex thing you can think of. And in 1768, he became even more infamous by attacking and assaulting a woman named Rose Keller. And strangely, this makes his books more popular. However, this is also the beginning of the turn of sadism and sadist as psychiatrists begin to study this motherfucker. So, you know, think about that when you tell someone you're into sadomasochism, I guess. And then in 1883, the Kama Sutra goes mainstream. Unfortunately, this isn't because of some massive sexual and feminist revolution. Instead, it was translated into English and spread across the English-speaking world as a novelty object. In addition, because of the sensibilities and man's worldness of the Western world at the time, it was also heavily censored to reduce the presence of women and scrape off a lot of the actual good advice sections. And the translation was really rough making it sound much less profound, and turning the whole thing into a kind of primitive stick-dick-and-meat-here guide, and not a full-fledged relationship. And guess which version survived to today? Yep, the book about fucking with a lot of missing good information. Three years later, in 1886, the terms sadism and masochism are defined psychologically by Richard Freiherr von Kraft Ebing, an Austrian physicist, like I needed to tell you that he was Austrian, he defined these terms as a propensity for sexual deviance and named them after Marquis de Sade and the writer Sacher Massac. Based on his work, Venus and Furs, where a male submissive is exposed to greater and greater acts of degradation and abuse from the woman he's in love with. And I'll admit, while the urge exists to say luckier mood, from my understanding, this wasn't the fun kind of abuse, like being slapped around a little bit, or getting your mouth spat in, and not the fun kind of degradation, like getting called a slut. It's the bad kind. Did I just sound myself too much? Regardless, Sacramasoch, as I would be, 
wasn't too happy being lumped in the same category as Marquis de Sade, and also took issue with being linked to a term meaning sexual deviance. But did Von Kraft Ebing give anything resembling a fuck? Nope. But he also didn't give him the double bird and a strong smack across the Austrian mustache because he figured he'd probably like it. Now we're jumping forward once more to the same place we landed during the Boo Armor episode. After the First World War, as pulp comics became more and more popular and pinups started to proliferate worldwide, erotic media had a brand new avenue to be written and read and jerked off to by teenage boys who are definitely not going to the bathroom six times a day to whack their dick around. This changes in the late 1930s as comics begin to decline in popularity and it costs a lot more to produce, meaning comics lean in being smutty and begin to print sexier and sexier covers, sometimes to the point of being almost softcore porn, which definitely didn't spark any kind of mid-pubescent fetishes in young people at the time. Seeing this as a problem, in 1954 the Comics Code Authority developed in the U.S., which heavily limits and censors the amount of sex, drugs, rock and roll, and bloodshed you show in your comics. In response to this, a lot of erotic writers moved over to the burgeoning paperback book market. Not to be outmaneuvered, the British government in 1959 passes the Obscene Publications Act. This bans all obscene material not created for scientific or cultural progression or purpose basically meaning that really, really old or clinical pussy and dick out is okay. Otherwise, cover your shameful sin skin. And immediately in 1960, Penguin Books is put on trial for their publication of the 1928 book Lady Chatterley's Lover, a book often credited with being some of the earliest BDSM literature of the modern era. And yes, that's a lot of specifiers, but I don't want you weird fucks to find like some ancient Greek BDSM literature or something just to prove me wrong. However, the 1960s in the U.S. marks the beginning of the golden age of the erotic and otherwise normal fiction with the publication of Gore in 1966. G-O-R. Don't worry. While it was erotic in many ways and at many different times, this mainstream science fantasy Sword and Planet series introduced kink in a major way across the sci-fi and fantasy genres. Notably, the series contains a ton of kink, especially of the slave master variety. However, as expected, 1960s slave master kink fiction, it has gotten a lot of pushback for its depictions of slavery, especially slavery of women and how often they're treated as submissive sex objects rather than people. Which isn't to say that if you want to be treated like that, you're problematic. It's just, just probably something we shouldn't be okay with on a societal level. Anyways, Gore lasted until 1988 and was later revived in 2001, hopefully a little bit toned down. And for the modern, modern day, Fifty Shades of Grey, the book series, came out in 2011 as a fan fiction of Twilight that bravely imagined what if the blood-sucking, kind of sexually problematic vampires were actually blood-sucking, kind of sexually problematic billionaires. Hold on, did I just say vampires twice? Anyways, this book series was heavily handed announced by the BDSM community and kink community being problematic as fuck and depicting some of the most unhealthy BDSM to ever be seen. However, despite this and the genuinely atrociously unsexy writing, it becomes incredibly popular. Much to the rejoicing of sexually frustrated conservative housewives the world over. Even more to the rage of the kink community, the movie premieres in 2015, and yes, it's been that long. And as if that wasn't bad enough, 
France declares 120 Days of Sodom, a rape book written by the rapist Marquis de Sade, as a national treasure in 2017. It would be incredibly unfair to Fifty Shades author E.L. James to be compared to Marquis de Sade, but it is brutally and painfully ironic that two pieces of media that unfairly portray the kink community would gain the spotlight at about the same time and both be so widely beloved for some fucking reason. And, okay, also, I need to get this out because I found Fifty Shades of Grey quotes. Popsicle is used in Fifty Shades of Grey to describe giving a blowjob, I swear to all that you find holy. Okay, but getting back on track, let's talk about why this counts. So, why does doing kink and sex right even matter in the first place, you might be asking. I mean, what's the worst that can happen if I get a little sloppy with my language here and there, do something that's a little uncomfy, you follow up before I can answer? Because, I reply, smothering you with a pillow, sex is a sensitive subject, almost unique in Western culture for the weird ways we think about it and behave towards it. Sex is a topic wrapped up in a lot of emotions, as well as some deep erotic feelings that we're uncomfortable with in the U.S. especially, but in many parts of the West. Also, if you're going to be quiet, I will let this pillow off your face now. So it matters that when you discuss sex in fiction, you give people plenty of lead-up and warning and not jump-scare them with someone getting their fucking guts rearranged. Why? Because beyond them maybe not expecting that to happen right at that moment or watching-slash-listening-slash-reading with someone they don't want to see sex stuff with, some people have other problems. Maybe it's tied to some sort of trauma they're experiencing or are sex addicts trying to recover or just aren't comfortable with the implications you're presenting them with these specific characters, time, or scenario. For example, if you have a pair of characters in a student-mentor relationship for most of the show you're running, and have a character in another scene go, I wonder how they are, and as a joke, you jump to them in the storage closet, fucking each other's brains out and screaming like a lion, getting extra-large anal beads pulled out like a lawnmower cord, some members of your audience might be disgusted or horrified, and reasonably so. But besides the jump scare, why? Well, because they might be experiencing a sexual trauma where they had an inappropriate relationship like that. Or they liked the mentor-student relationship and were imagining themselves and their mentor when all of a sudden you throw this fucked up little monkey wrench into it and make them feel gross and shitty and awkward. You should write sex scenes with stuff like this in mind. Not to say that you shouldn't do it, but if your sex scene is there because you want audience attention, by making your very attractive actress act like she's getting plowed, fucking stop and write a better show. And even if it does have narrative weight, have some clear lead-ins or signals that your audience is about to be exposed to a sex scene. And for kinks, it's important to not spring a kink on an audience because of the same jump scare effect. It's also important to portray the kink or fetish fairly because portraying it poorly or springing on your audience not expecting to see their favorite character dressed like a leather daddy with a dildo up his ass can sour their experience of both the show and the kink. Which in turn, sours their perception of what the kink is and how it works. Which can cause a lot more discrimination and hate towards people who are into it. Additionally, if you do a kink in a problematic way, 
bet your ass the entire community around it is going to denounce you and call you out on your shit. And what are you going to do when the maskists are bashing down your door? Pain compliance just makes them hornier. But on the opposite end, if you portray kinks fairly and it's something some people are into, it becomes less taboo and people are more willing to actually listen to someone with that kink or maybe be open to finding out if they like it themselves. Which, outside of me being a kinky son of a bitch and wanting there to be more of us, is something that's valuable because, like we discussed earlier, finding the shit you're into can be really, really good for your mental health and can be used to influence your physical health as well. So say rather than doing the stereotypical sub-dom thing in a story where one is abusive and the other is terrified, the other would be more like equals. Like, sure, everyone knows that Bob and Kurt share a room that has shackles on the walls, and Bob makes the choices for them, Kurt genuinely and openly enjoys it, and the two both trust and believe each other. Something happens as important, Bob drops the Dom attitude and listens to Kurt, and Kurt, despite being a sub, is willing to bring up important topics about their relationship and other things going on, including plot things. With this betrayal, you'll not only get a fiercely loyal honor guard of kinksters, for intimidation purposes only, but you also have shown people that Fifty Shades of Grey and Leather Mommy Villainesses aren't how this has to work. Which means people understand the kink a little better. Which also means it's easier for people who try it out to end up in healthy relationships within a helpful and healthy community that feels fulfilling and fun and not like a compulsion. And finally, with sex and fetishes, is that they're usually attached to villains. And both kinks and sexual activity in general isn't generally applied to main characters. And this is because of the bell curve normality we discussed last episode. Think about it real quick. Who are the canonically sexually active superheroes that aren't making out with slash fucking their one true love? Because for me, the ones that I think of are Deadpool, a bisexual and horny character in all the meanings of the word, and Harley Quinn, a bisexual and kinky character in all meanings of those words. And both are also straight-up killers with mental problems. And this feeds into the issue here. If you attach kinks and sex with some sort of trauma, pathology, villain, self-destructiveness, or as a joke, then you reinforce those same real-world beliefs about kinks. And sure, can people who are self-destructive, mentally ill, or traumatized be engaging unhealthily in kink to hide from their pain? Yes. I have failed to meet someone kinky that didn't at least start like that before they addressed their trauma. And are kinks deadly serious affairs with absolutely no levity? No. Kinks are supposed to be fun, and sometimes your brain will suddenly realize that what you're doing looks fucking weird and it's funny. But are they real experiences that are profound that should be treated as something people build a lot of confidence and comfort around? Yes, absolutely. So... Let's tell you how to write about sex and kinkiness. I mean, if that's what you're into. Let's start with sex. So, how do you write sex? Well, I mean, first off, know your audience. Is your story filled with a lot of sex and sexual tension by its nature, or would it make sense? And that's one thing. But if you're writing a normally not horny story, like a superhero story that isn't animated, it doesn't make sense to have a lot of fucking in it. Or if you're writing something about, like, a trap behind enemy lines, desperate war story, 
Also, probably not appropriate. Basically, think about who you're writing for and be suitably horny. You know, so if you're writing for other writers, just write smut, for example. But what do you do if you realize that all the hot and steamy sex scenes you want to write doesn't fit your audience? Well, if it's appropriate to still imply it, then just lead into another moment before anyone gets naked and fade to black and go somewhere else. And the other thing is that if you have a very horny story, it's still important to be selective about the sex stuff you include. Because sometimes, we don't need to see this pair of characters have eye-rolling orgasmic sex to prove they're compatible and work together 30 fucking times. Your audience probably knew that by time, like, number three, and that's if they're especially dumb. Just move on and let them watch some other people get it on. Or, you know, get the story moving, you horny bastard. Now, for the kinks. It's going to be a lot longer and will also be backwards compatible with the sex stuff. So, the first thing to admit, and to break to you if you don't already know it, is that your kinks will absolutely bleed into your work if you have them. You can avoid this, but it's incredibly difficult to catch if you don't know what you're looking for. In addition, some audiences won't even notice. I bring this up because if you're going into something trying to write a kinky story, you don't have to worry about hamming it up. If you're worried about having your kinks in your story, I also wouldn't worry about that because more often than not, the people watching probably won't notice unless you out yourself. For example, I write a ton of stories with either a strong female lead or a very present supporting character that is hyper-competent, physically imposing, and fucking terrifying. Now, if you didn't know anything about me, that's just a cool character design. But instead of out of myself on every possible platform, you know that is my kink, slipping one past the goalie. Now, the other piece of this, before we get into specifics, is to write kinks fairly. And how do we do this? Well, don't have the only kinksters in your stories be villains or bad people. This means that if you out one of your villains as being really into getting gangbanged, if you can show one of your more heroic characters as being kinky as hell, then at least show that you're capable of making a character that's both a good guy and knows what sex is. Additionally, unless it's a plot element, don't make your characters kink something shameful or something they hate about themselves. Make it something they don't know much about and that's embarrassing, or they get flustered because seeing the villainess wear purple lipstick wasn't something they knew that they were into. If you don't want kinky heroes, you probably also don't need to have other characters be kinky. Also, kinks can be really revealing about someone's interests, a deeper character, and attitudes. For example, say a character you're writing is really into hate-fucking and is very interested in one of the side characters that seems to inexplicably hate them. But they're only really interested because of their fetish. What does this say about her attitude towards life and people? How has this formed relationships, and what does that say about what she's missing in her life? Given that a lot of kinks have some kind of emotional element in them, let's say that for this character, it's because she wants to experience two things. First, intense, ball-clapping passion, and two, the feeling of victory that comes from overcoming someone's hatred for her just enough to get them into her pants. Which, as a professional armchair psychologist for fictional characters, I can confidently say this comes from some Freudian-level shit. She very well might have confidence issues, and having someone still be physically into her and trying to please her despite that might soothe that. Or she feels like people aren't passionate enough about things, so she gets people extremely angry and horny just to prove to herself that people are still able to get these kinds of emotional rises. 
again, this is something to consider, and fetishes and kinks shouldn't just be applied to characters willy-nilly. Because unlike real life, things happen in stories for a reason, and if they happen for no reason, your audience is probably going to baby rage on you. So with that, let's get into the first set of specific advice. Now, given that I'm really bad at writing kinky stuff for people that aren't me, let's first look at an article by Morgan Hawk called Writing Fetish Fiction. In this article, she discusses how to write both sex and fetish scenes and turn it into an actual plot, which, again, I'm bad at. So, first off, stories in general may contain a lot of different elements, but will focus on specific ones that fit into a genre. No shit, right? But erotic fiction is the same, and where a lot of people who go wrong is they decide to either focus too heavily on everything that isn't the kinky, steamy, nasty fetish fucking they advertise, or remove elements until it's just sex. Stay focused on the horny, erotic, and sexy, but don't forget to, you know, write a story. Now, something that'll help you a lot with that is make the scenes and themes themselves necessary to the plot. Not just by doing that thing that they do in Game of Thrones sometimes, where someone is bareback writing while they talk about plot things, because that isn't making it necessary, that's not being confident enough to tell your story, so you throw in something to keep your audience's attention. Like tits. So, make the story focused around this erotic shit, and if it doesn't have to be there, don't include it. Like, for example, if you're writing smut about a hooker and her John slowly falling in love in the smut equivalent of Romeo and Juliet, then it would be important to show them banging and slowly it becoming more and more loving until it's not just about the sex anymore. And sure, you can include a couple of scenes of her fucking other people to demonstrate their connection, but these scenes become less and less necessary as time passes. It's like writing a war movie. Yes, fighting is going to be part of it, but it doesn't have to be wall-to-wall to count. But how do you even do this? Because, let's face it, we've been conditioned to see sex scenes as brain-empty opportunities to pull an audience back in. It's a lot like how fight scenes have become. They're both just kind of empty moments where groups of people slap some meat together to keep your audience from turning your show off. So how do you make the erotic become a driver of plot, action, drama, or information? Well, first, use the scene to show us something about your characters. Do they have good or bad chemistry? Do they talk during sex or not? Are their fetishes aligned? Use these things to show us how your characters feel about each other. For example, if you've been doing the on-again, off-again thing and they start fucking... One way to show that they're absolutely into each other is to make one person wrap the other person in their arms and then have the other person reciprocate. That tiny moment of intimacy will speak volumes to your audience if you call attention to that being important. And if characters have bad chemistry during sex or don't feel comfortable or having a hard time communicating, that can be used to show how they're having problems in their relationship. Especially if they are both really, really bad at this and neither are talking to each other. Secondly, use these moments to actually prove the point of your story. What, you thought Smut couldn't have a point? Fucking idiot, it's still a story, right? What next, you'll tell me you didn't know all those mecha animes you watched when you were a kid were about the horrors of childhood sexualization and putting your emotional and societal problems on the shoulders of children to fix for you instead of nutting up and admitting that you made a mistake? Anyways... Even erotic stories have a point, and sex scenes can be used to prove that point. 
if you're writing a story about self-acceptance and that people who love you will still accept you even if you're bad at something, to make the first couple of sex scenes between a pair of characters in love be sloppy, premature, ejaculating, train wrecks of a farce where they need to be embarrassingly rescued from the box spring by their friends who totally weren't just listening in. And then importantly, make the love interests remember it fondly and actually have enjoyed themselves, even if it wasn't very pleasurable. Or if the point is that sex can't fix everything, have the sex be more and more frustrating and difficult the more shit in your story goes wrong. And third, and most importantly, make something plot-relevant happen. Again, if you didn't have to put the scene in, why are you including it? Scenes and stories are usually setting up something or introducing or resolving plot elements. So use these scenes in the same way. Maybe this isn't just a sex scene for the sake of it, but it introduces an uncomfortable new development in the relationship of these characters right before the big world-saving battle, and the plan doesn't go like it's supposed to because these two horny fuckers are distracted. Now, getting back on track, how else do you write besides plot structure? Well, erotic fiction, almost more than maybe any other besides, ironically, horror, is incredibly sensory. So rather than dryly saying he stuck his dick inside and wailed around until they both came, try, I don't know, getting sexy about it? How does Schlong schloop in there? How does partner react? What it sound like? What it feel like? With both kink and sex, so much of the experience isn't cerebral, has a lot of very powerful emotional and sensory information you can use. At least it should. If you're getting all five of your senses around your partner's genitals, what the fuck are you doing? Actually, get all of them in there. Figure out a way to use the sense of balance and time to eat them out harder. And also, don't be afraid of metaphor. But like, you know, sexy metaphor. Don't say something like, his gloober snake parted her beef curtains, because that is sonically unpleasant to hear and ocularly unpleasant to read. Trust me, I'm doing both. Instead, say something that makes your audience moist just hearing it. And look, I'll be real with you, even if I could figure out what that is, given that my sexy talk is really, really bad, only a very select group of you want to hear that, and you'll need to pay money for it. So, you know, be creative. And finally, how do you end your story? Well, put it wherever the events of the story and your character's kink would reasonably lead them. And this means some actual thought. I know, thinking about the future is terrifying. Thinking about where my life is going to be by the time I post this is scary enough, much less years into the future. And for this, keep in mind that fetishes and kinks aren't necessarily something that can or should be cured or go away with time. While yes, they morph and change over time and may eventually go away completely, don't treat your character's kinks and fetishes as a plot issue that needs to be fixed. It's okay if your character with hentai-level sexual sensitivity in their inner ear gets to the guy of their dreams because of it, still has the sensitivity 20 years later than the epilogue where they're married to make your readers feel morally justified for reading it in the first place. It's also okay if your character has confidence issues and is a complete submissive, who has solved their confidence issues and is still submissive as hell. These aren't skill issues, they're lifestyle choices. Now, to switch over to another article, How to Write Realistic Kink by Misha Elliott. And in this article, Elliott focuses more on the meta-mechanics of it. Like, what we covered and why it matters, 
this is more about how it actually makes good and fair representations of some really kinky shit. Starting with the basics. First, get it out of your little cretinous brains that you have to be traumatized to be kinky. This is one of those things that's both true and hard to find evidence from from my own experience. I know they exist. I am not one of them. No kinkster I've ever met is one of them. No kinkster I've ever seen is one of them. But they are out there. And if your kinky characters are all traumatized, you're also putting out this really weird message. Because your audience who might not be traumatized and be into the shit you're posting might start questioning if they have that ever-elusive secret trauma. But if they don't have that kink and are reading or watching for some fucking reason, now they're assuming that people with that kink have issues and are only into it because of that. Which isn't true. Some people's brains just, while they're developing, decide, hey, I think feet are sexy, and now they need to see Jennifer Lawrence's toes to come. Second, don't rely on porn and erotic fiction to understand how fetish works. Look, I get it. Trust me. It's fucking rough out there, and it's hard to find people that want to fuck you. Especially in the way you want to be. So it's tempting to just open up your porn site of choice, type in the fetish you want, and go to town writing or jerking or both. Instead, if you don't have the fetish in question, find that community somewhere and ask questions. Or if you're into it and aren't experienced, do the same. Maybe you'll luck out and they'll collectively decide to fuck you. You never know. And third, resources are out there about just about any fetish you can imagine. It's the grand old internet. Almost two-thirds is porn alone. People be horny in these parts so you can find actual good, legit guides and get started pointers on almost any fetish you could possibly imagine. And here's the thing. People are willing to talk about it if you aren't a judgy prick about it. Go figure, right? Especially because as a particular kink becomes more well-known, people in the community will become more and more comfortable talking about it. Meaning that if you're writing something like BDSM or bondage fiction, you'll have people lining up out the door to tell you all about it if you let them. And why are these the basics? Well, because in addition to making things like this fair, Understand that a certain portion of your audience are people whacking off to it because they don't have someone to do it with. And a good number of those people are just straight up inexperienced. Being that you write something inaccurate, that's someone walking around thinking that squirt is pissed, or the clitoris is in the throat, or that a woman can come from thrusting into her abdomen alone. If you write something dangerous or physically impossible, then you have dumbasses, no matter how much you tell them not to, trying it for themselves and getting themselves hospitalized or killed. Or someone else hospitalized or killed. And if you show them something incredibly emotionally or physically abusive, or generally just toxic and shitty, it might lead to them putting up with some toxic and shitty things for no other reason than thinking that's just how it works. With that covered, let's get more into writing specific stuff starting with why you've chosen this particular fetish with this particular character. Why are they into it? And don't just say, he to come, because no shit, Sherlock. Instead, consider what this kink means for them as a person and how they approach life and relationships because of it. Like mentioned earlier, kinks can be an insight into a person's attitudes on life and what they want from the world. And while I won't delve into my own existential crisis, I recently made realizations as to why I'm into what I'm into and why they feel so soothing and comforting and what that says about me personally. So, 
do the same thing for your characters. Are they into their partner being super possessive over them? Then does that mean that they want to be desired and chased or protected? Or do they just want someone to prove how they feel? And do this for all your characters, not just the ones the story is about. Make their fetish connected to their personality and story. Also, consent, consent, consent. For fuck's sake, I'll turn you inside out if you ignore consent. So many kinks and fetishes are built on that really basic premise of trusting the other person you're doing it with. So when you write, don't ignore the very important aspect of everything being consensual. Include safe words, communication, and everything else that builds not only this trust, but shows it throughout your story. If you think it would ruin the mood or break the story, don't fucking include sex in the first place. If you write people engaging in kinks without safe words, enthusiastic consent, and constant communication, you're spreading some fucking bullshit that absolutely will get people hurt. And also, don't toe the line. If someone in your story uses a safe word, end it without hesitation. This shows not only respect between sex partners, but also demonstrate how to be a decent fucking person. Alright, and finally, don't be afraid to include sex and sexuality in your story in general. While yes, you do need to mind boundaries and how appropriate it is for your story, no one says a serious story can't have some good old-fashioned fucking. And look, this is a bigger thing of smut being considered a lesser form of art, but truly understand that it isn't. Sex is a natural thing, and it makes sense to write about it. Anyways, let's go to the soapbox. Alright, so now that I have the chance to talk about my preferred smut and sex and the weird kinky shit I think about in my spare time, what am I into? Not gonna do that, don't worry. Or worry a whole lot if you want to know what I'm into. Call me, I guess. Um, but am I a fan of kinky writing and sex and stories? Yes and no. I mean, in the sense of being a horny person, yes, obviously. But as someone who considers themselves an artist because they can write better than, like, a quarter of all people in existence, I'm actually a lot more wary of erotic writing as a genre. Not because it has bad roots or the idea of a sexy story you can wank your willy to, that's also something genuinely engaging and interesting doesn't sound great. Instead, it's because every time I try to find something either like that or similar to that, I can't. Because the genre has been flooded with amateur hour being horny on main and posting the least diluted industrial amounts of horny garbage I've ever seen. I don't just mean writing, I mean the stories and other forms of art as well that are used to tell erotic stories. Even modern erotic poetry seems really happy with itself to stroke its own ego that's not your grandpappy's poetry instead of trying to write poems. Well, sure, there's a lot of erotic media that's really high engaging that only lasts until you nut. Once you do, you really realize just how shitty it was in the first place. But again, conceptually, I think that's a cool idea. Also, a huge fan of including allusions to or outright talking about sex and stories, but that isn't the point. Both plot relevantly and not. For example, I think in a story about young straight men being isolated together, like in a war story, it would make a lot of sense for them to talk about sex or outright fantasize about women. Because young men in that situation start getting really fucking gross really fucking fast. Or a post-apocalypse story with a mixed gender and sexuality group, 
Of course the topic of sex would come up eventually, especially if members are shown to be attractive and they spend years together. I think that sex definitely has a place in writing, and I think, as hopefully the history shows, it's not going away. I mean, sure, the genre right now is kind of in a bad spot, but, you know, that's the internet for you. It's wall-to-wall amateur hour in here. But the genre will survive, and we'll probably even get back to the high art phase of its cycle, but right now we're dealing with moralizing geriatric lawmakers, realizing that people can see titties and bondage on the internet, so we're shifting from quantity over quality to the speak-easy-of-come era right now. Alright, let's finish the episode. And completed. That's another episode down the drain with the rest of the swimmers. Anyways, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast feed, like it, leave a review, whatever else it is that you can do on your platform of choice. Send me an email at waytatpods.com. That is W-A-Y-T-A-T-P-O-D-S at gmail.com. With questions, concerns, opinions, compliments, insults, um, actuallys, porn you've watched, weird kinks, and none of that, please, because the thought of the FBI asking me what terrorist pot I'm planning with all these feed pics scares the living shit out of me. Also, follow me on Twitter at waytat underscore pods. Remember to check out my other podcast, Waytat, where I talk about things happening in the U.S. They're usually a bit more soul-crushing than this. Alright, have a good night, have fun, keep writing, and remember, stay kinky. This has been Why Aren't You Talking About This Nerd, and I've been your host, William. Good night.